Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. And today I'm joined by a fascinating gentleman, Gotham Makundo, uh, who has written a book called Picking Presidents and another previous book called Indispensable. And what I love about this is he's got a framework for working through how presidents are successful and non-successful and how you spot whether they're going to be successful or unsuccessful. He uses filtered and unfiltered uh, for that. But it's fascinating to dig in to a couple of the aspects of that with real examples from presidents, but also relating it into talent management, leadership. So uh, a brilliant conversation, lovely guy um, to talk to. And uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Look forward to hearing from you. Lovely to have you on the show, sir. I'd, I'd love you to do an introduction to everybody uh, who's listening about your background. Fascinating background, fascinating topic today. Yeah. Thank you, Colin. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. So my name is Gotham Makunda. I'm the author of Picking Presidents, How to Make the Most Consequential Decision in the World. I also wrote Indispensable, When Leaders Really Matter. I'm a research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Center for Public Leadership. Before that, I was on faculty at Harvard Business School, and I was distinguished visiting professor at, at Tsinghua. University Schwartzman College. Wow. Impressive CV, sir. Impressive CV. Amazing. I, I was so fascinated to dig into today's conversations, but how did you get here? How did you get to to this topic? You know, the indispensable is on the same topic. The picking presidents is a bit more hones, but how did you get to this this day? Yeah. So I started out studying leadership when I was in graduate school, partly because it had always fascinated me, as I think it fascinates anyone who's, who likes history but also because I thought it was the most important topic about which we knew the least. Hmm. And so in the, for, in my dissertation and my first book, I tried to take on sort of answer a question that I think people have been debating for as long as people have had debates, which is do individuals matter, right? And you can go all the way back to Plato and Thucydides and see in them discussions of this question. Do individuals make a difference or is history made by individuals or by larger social forces? Hmm. And so, you know, I was doing my PhD and if I, if I had not gotten an academic job, I, you know, I would have just gone back to the, gone to the private sector or worked in the government or something. So I, I decided instead of doing the, you know, that I was going to take on a big question like that, but that just seemed more mm. fun to me. Um, it is a big question as well. I mean, it's it is a big <laughs> and indispensable was my answer to that question. And what I said is that because if you looked at the academic research on leaders, what you found is that most of it said that most that leaders don't matter. Hmm. And in particular, they said there were three reasons leaders don't matter, right? That leaders are constrained by external forces, by competitors and you know things like that. They're constrained by, in, constrained by internal forces, by custom and politics and budgets and, and culture. But the most important thing is that leaders are not chosen randomly. They're mm. chosen through a process. And that process evaluates candidates for leadership and examines them and gets to know them over years, usually. And so by the time someone becomes the leader, they've been so thoroughly evaluated by that process that if the system hadn't picked them, it would have just picked someone else who would have done exactly the same things. Hmm. And so swapping out the leader wouldn't have changed the outcomes any at all. Hmm. And what I said was, as with a lot of things in social science, it's true except when it isn't. If you're talking about McKinsey or Goldman Sachs or General Electric or some organization like that, that's pretty much going to be true. The only way up until very recently to get to the top of that organization was to be was to work your way up through the through the ranks and have them spend 20 or 30 years evaluating you. But suppose someone gets the takes charge of an organization through a different path. Hmm. Maybe they inherit the job 
or there's a scandal that eliminates all the other candidates or, or they're just hired from outside as companies are want to do. In that situation, that person might not be thoroughly evaluated. The system might actually not know what they were choosing. And when that happens, you might get someone who is very, very different from all of the other people who could have had the job. And because they're different, they would make different choices. <laughs> and what we know about choices where I do something that no one else in the world would do is those choices are very high variance in outcome. They either do really well or really poorly, but they're rarely boring. And so my answer to that sort of eternal question was that it is true that most leaders don't matter. But under specific identifiable circumstances, when the leaders are unfiltered, they can matter a very, very great deal. And so that was my first book. And so in that, I kind of said like, hey, you know, unfiltered leaders are going to be great or they're going to be awful. And it's kind of hard to tell which one they're going to be in advance. If, if I knew, that would be wonderful, but it's not easy. Uh, and the biggest factor is probably luck. <laughs> but I did say that there are a set of thick characteristics, and this is all in the first book, which was published in 2012. So nothing mm -hmm. about contemporary politics, nothing about anybody and going on, anything that's going on today, 2012, long time ago. <laughs> and what I said was, you know, there are four characteristics that sort of, wor that would worry me where if an unfiltered candidate for leadership had any of those four, I would say, this is not worth the risk. What those four have in common is they all produce what I call false signals of capability. So they make someone look more impressive than they actually are on, on superficial examination. And the four I identified in the first book were psychological and personality disorders like narcissism and psychopathy, out of the mainstream and highly simplistic ideologies, an incompetent or extremely risk-prone managerial approach, and unearned advantages like inherited wealth. Hmm. So that happened. Um, and all of a sudden, we, the president of the United States was someone who looked like they had stepped out of the pages of my book. <laughs> and so what I decided with the second book to do was, was to take on two questions. So the first one was, if you apply my theory to the presidency, can you create an objective set of frameworks that anyone can use contemporaneously during elections? So you don't need to, you don't need historians. You don't need to go backwards in time. You don't need their childhood. Just with data that's publicly available in the New York Times hmm. that would allow you to judge whether or not someone was actually capable of doing the job of the presidency, right? So even hmm. if they're not from my party, at least you say, I'm comfortable with the idea of that person in the Oval Office. And the second one was, the, was, I thought we could learn a lot about leadership more broadly because it would be good to be able to predict in advance when these unfiltered leaders, who after all are both the very best and the very worst leaders. So the leaders who make huge <laughs> impacts are unfiltered ones. It would be good to be able to sort of improve our odds of picking the best ones. <laughs> and the presidency is the ideal laboratory in which to learn about that because the presidency is the most studied leadership position in the world. Just as an example, there are more books about Abraham Lincoln than there are any other person who's ever lived except Jesus. <laughs> That is incredible. It is amazing, right? So we know more about presidents than we do mm -hmm. about CEOs or about the leaders of other countries. And so the presidency is a wonderful place in which to develop and test our theories of leadership and see, can we predict which ones are going to be do well and which ones are going to do poorly? And so mm -hmm. this book is both about the presidency, but it's also about more than the presidency because the ways we, I suggest to pick leaders there apply in many, many different domains.
I'd love to dig into a couple of the, the bits on the filtered and unfiltered because for people listening, and I'm extrapolating it into the, the world of business and organizations, people who listen to this podcast. So I'm very clear that unfiltered, you either get good or bad, and you say the extremes, and that's that's fascinating. Give me a, a flavor of the filtered version of, of, of definition. So yeah. in modern politics, you know, if you think of someone who's risen up through the ranks, who's worked their way up the system, Think George H.W. Bush, who was president mm -hmm. not that long ago, 1989 to 1993. So before he became president, he'd been vice president, ambassador to China, director of the CIA, chairman of the Republican National Committee, a member of Congress. He'd just been banging around the upper ranks of the American political system for forever. And everyone knew everything there was to know about him, mm -hmm. and everyone knew what they were getting when they elected him. And so that's a filtered person. And so I would say, yes, he probably had a low impact. But that is not a criticism, mm. right? Um, the, the, the Simpsons is, of course, the source of all life wisdom. Love and it. Marge Simpson once said, you know, it is true that one person can make a difference, but they usually shouldn't. <laughs> uh, um, when one person makes a difference, the most common pathway is through failure. Because it is just easier to fail than it is to succeed. There are more ways to fail than there are to succeed. And if the way you do an have an impact is by doing something that no one else in your shoes would do, well, most of the time, there's a reason no one else would do it. Mm. And that decision doesn't work out too well. Mm. And so in George H.W. Bush, you get someone who was pretty much a mainstream Republican who did things that weren't all that different from his predecessor or his successor, uh, even though his successor was a Democrat. But who brought to the table, right, the virtues of his training. So mm -hmm. when the United States faced the greatest foreign policy challenge it had faced since the end of the Second World War, the fall of the Soviet Union, you had in the presidency someone who knew exactly how to handle it. And the virtues of that are not small either. That that no. incredible level of confidence. I, was, I, I often think that George H.W. Bush's greatest flaw was that he took impossible tasks and executed them so successfully he made them look easy so he didn't get any credit for it. Isn't that what good leaders are about? I mean, that's the, the unsung, the, the quieter leaders who go about their work and nobody hears about it. There's no fuss yeah. Yeah, around it. Yeah, fascinating. So going into that then, give me an example of an unfiltered leader in that presidency piece so we can just get a comparison so, of good and bad. Sure. Yeah. So in very recent history, you know, you'd have, you know, Barack Obama or the most unfiltered of all presidents, Donald Trump. But let's go back in time a little bit and mm -hmm. think about, say, uh, Theodore Roosevelt. So Theodore Roosevelt is, you know, is sort of my favorite president. He's my wife's favorite president by far. I'm not uncomfortable about that at all. Um, but um, <laughs> and um, and he is uh, he, he, he is, you know, as on a really, really unfiltered. So Theodore, when we talk first, let's look at impact. Theodore Roosevelt created the modern presidency. He started enforcing antitrust rules. He won the Nobel Peace Prize for negotiating the peace in the Russo-Japanese War. He asserted the United States in foreign policy for sort of the first real time that an American president had done so. He vastly, vastly expanded the national park system, essentially, in, in a real sense, launched the American environmental movement. Mm. Um, even if your children have a teddy bear that's named after Theodore Roosevelt. Right. The teddy bear is named after Theodore Roosevelt. Did not know that. Yes. So, so his shadow just stretches through history. But how did Teddy Roosevelt become president? So he was a very successful. He had been he had an incredible resume when you think about it. Right. He had been governor of New York, commissioner of the civil service, 
New York City police commissioner. He had also been the, uh, sort of a military hero in the war in Cuba. He's, he's, he's got a resume. It's a short one. Um, but the reason he becomes president is because he, as governor of New York, he had continued with his, his sort of progressive reformist movements and the Republican Party power barons didn't like this. That was a problem for them, right? Because they liked the sort of corrupt system of the era. And they said, well, we have to get rid of him, but he's too popular to be defeated in an election. So we need to put him somewhere where he cannot do any harm at all, where he has no power. Oh, yes, the vice presidency. <laughs> Love that. And in fact, Mark Hanna, the greatest of the greatest political baron of his age, was the only person who opposed this, who said, you know, there will only be only be one heartbeat between that maniac and the White House. Mm hmm. And T.R. himself did not want to be vice president because he thought that it would be the end of his career because he'd be just be, you know, stuck off in a closet somewhere. And so in the in the nominating convention, the only vote against him was his own. But of course, soon after he became president, McKinley was assassinated and T.R. became the youngest president in American history, a title I suspect he will hold till the end of time. Um, And that he was incredibly different from, you know, the Republican Party's power elite would never have allowed someone like T.R., into the White House if they had the choice. So I love that. And I want to extrapolate because we talk about a term of unlikely leaders and we talk about equity and we talk about career choices. And in some ways, I, when I first heard the term of filtered and unfiltered, I was thinking unfiltered is, you know, diversity, poverty, you know, hardship, growing up through that. But I'm hearing subtle variations in there. You could have somebody who is unlikely but come through the filtered route. Yeah. I think... The word you want to key off on unfiltered exactly is unlikely. Mm. What you want to think is if the system had, you know, if, if you could play the tape again, the outcome probably would not end up with this person in charge. Mm. Okay. Um, and so in the case of, in the, in the case of, of what you're, what you're describing, sort of diversity, things like that. So those are all really important signals about a candidate for leadership. So now if you're, a, if you're a filtered candidate, then the system already knows everything about you. We don't have to kind of extrapolate from your background who you are because the system's done that for us and better than we could ever have done because they've had, you know, decades of close up contact with someone to evaluate them. But when you think about an unfiltered candidate and you think about how, what, what's the best way to maximize their odds of success or more accurately, our odds of picking someone who will succeed. So we talked about the dangers of picking someone with false signals of performance. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of others that we can talk about and that I describe in the book. But there are also what you could say true signals of capability. So in the United States, we have a preference for the phrase, you know, the somewhat sexist phrase we have is self-made men, self-made mm-hmm. people, right? People who rose up from poverty and sort of made their way to the top. Barack Obama is an example of that. There are plenty of others. Abraham Lincoln is the quintessential one mm-hmm. who in his own assessment had somewhere between two and three months of formal education. Mm-hmm. And so that actually is a really useful signal about someone because it is harder to make your way to the top from a position of great disadvantage than it is from a position of uh, from a position of privilege. Mm. It was it's just more difficult, and that's not just about socioeconomic status, right? It's harder if you're a woman. It's harder if you're gay. It's harder if you're black. The, just empirically, we look at the numbers, and it's clear that it is much more difficult to do so. Mm. But once you're in office, those characteristics do not hinder your performance, right? Mm. They make it harder to get the job, not harder to do the job. And so the way I think about it is, suppose you're able to win the 100-yard dash while you're wearing a weighted vest. Hmm. Think about how fast you would be when the vest, when the vest comes off. Hmm. These yeah. are people who, who won the race to the top, the, uh, the, in Disraeli's phrase, right, who climbed to the top of the greasy pole while wearing a vest. 
But once they're in office, the vest comes off. And so you should have higher, you should be more willing to take a risk on someone like that because their underlying capabilities are likely higher. I love that. And thinking about the, the modern day presidents that you're, you're thinking about, I think politics. Yeah. I think I would like to spread it out from us. And I know you've, you've done other, um, political leaders uh, globally. Mm-hmm. So give a, a view, somebody in the UK that this could work on and think about it. Cause there's something about situation, isn't there? You talked about it with Roosevelt and Teddy. Yeah. That's right. So in the UK, um, I haven't looked at the most recent run of UK prime ministers, although I'm looking forward to it because it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's <unique>. a <laughs> yes. uh, um, but in the UK, so the first thing there is that, you know, up until quite recently, I guess you'd say, um, the British system is far less prone to picking unfiltered leaders. Hmm. One of my favorite sort of weird political trivia questions is if you count experience or, you know, filtration in the British system as number of years in parliament, as a member of parliament, who was the least filtered or least experienced British prime minister since 1832, the advent of the modern British political system? And nobody ever gets it. No. Ever. Right. I mean, you, you, I have asked this to at this point, I've asked this to audiences that can cover thousands of people and no one has ever gotten the answer right. Mm. Because the answer is John Major. Right. I, I am the only person in history to ever use the phrase, the meteoric rise of John Major. <laughs> right. But John Major had 13 years in parliament before he became prime minister mm-hmm. in Britain. That makes him last in the United States. That would make him in the, put him in the upper quarter of all American presidents in terms of filtration mm-hmm. and experience. It's a mm-hmm. remarkable difference. Yeah. So I would argue that there are, Probably, again, I'm not including like Liz Truss. The recent stuff is not something I've looked at. There are at most probably two unfiltered British prime ministers. Um, I'm Mm -hmm. not as familiar with British political history as American, but I think you can make the argument for the Duke of Wellington, just Mm -hmm. that his stature was so gargantuan that if he wanted to be prime minister, he was going to be prime minister. Who's going to say no to him? And the parallel in the American history is Dwight Eisenhower, who was in the same situation. If he wanted to be president, who's going to be president? but in my first book, the ones I looked at were Neville Chamberlain and Winston Churchill. Hmm. Now, Neville Chamberlain is a, a, as classically filtered a leader as you can get. He worked his way up through the ranks. He'd held a dozen offices, and he was the consensus choice by the, for the conservative party. He was the consensus choice of the king. Everyone wanted him to be prime minister. Chamberlain doesn't sound unfiltered at first because, of course, he still, to this day, holds the record of holding the most ministerial offices of any person in British history. Hmm. But the key factor in filtration is not just evaluation, right? It's also that that evaluation plays a role in the decision to make this person the leader. And so when you look at how Churchill became prime minister, what you see is there is not a single actor, this major actor in the British political system who wanted him to be prime minister. (laughs) Everyone was opposed to it. Everybody thought this was a disastrous idea. The filtered candidate would have been Lord Halifax, who became, who was Churchill's uh, foreign minister initially, um, who pretty much everybody thought should have the job and who would have had the job if he had just said yes. <laughs> and for reasons we still don't entirely understand, he refused to take the, the, the become prime minister. My own guess is that he thought Churchill would be a disaster and that once Churchill sort of completely screwed it up, he could take over without Churchill being a problem in his own cabinet. But I, I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. We do not know why he said no. His ostensible reason was that because he was in the House of Lords, he wasn't he wasn't allowed to, but an enabling act, which would have been the work of about five minutes, could have been passed to allow him to do that. So mm-hmm. that, that is not a plausible reason for why he did why he said no. And so if every elite in the system does not want you to get the top job, but you get it anyways, you are definitely unfiltered. 
and or more in this particular case, it says you have been filtered and you've been filtered out and yes. some, you know, some lucky circumstance got it. And, and I'll just note, right, the, the British political system judgment of Churchill was not unwise, mm-hmm. right? His record up until May 1940 was not one that you would want in someone who was prime minister, right? He was so consistently wrong on issue, major issues of policy that um, when he was sort of warning against Hitler in the 1930s and saying, this is a, this, you know, this, this is the great, is a, the great danger, people would actually say, well, if Churchill thinks he's dangerous, then he probably isn't because Churchill's always wrong. Hmm. But in May 1940, when he becomes prime minister, he is, I believe, the only person in the world who could have kept Britain in the war, right? Hmm. It is not an overstatement to say that he saved the world. Because if you put yourself in the shoes of these British leaders, looking at the circumstance that Britain was facing and not yet knowing the full depth of Nazi depravity, right? Like, like, you know, like they hadn't, dis- we hadn't opened up the concentration camps yet. We didn't know just how bad things really were. Um, they didn't, it's kind of hard to make an argument to keep fighting. Mm. Um, right. So to such an extent that David Lloyd George, the prime minister who took Britain to le- victory in the first world war, you know, not, not exactly a wimp who's likely to li- likely to knuckle under in debate on the floor of parliament said, you know, was, was arguing for suing for peace and said, tell me how we win. Right? What is your theory of victory? Tell me how we win. Hmm. And no one had an answer for him. Fascinating. And so rationally, I think saying, you know, let's let's extract from the wreckage as much as we can was not a, was not an unwise thing to do. But of course, we should all be deeply grateful that Churchill didn't make calculations that way. Love that point because there's something resonating to me as a leader, and I've coached a lot of people where they their gut feel tells them something, and all the evidence around it. And you know, there's a lot in business about data, evidence. Give me the evidence to make decisions, but the gut feel. Or as one of my um, foreign um, people who I work with in Europe used to say, "Ah, it's." Gut feel. I always thought you said goat feel, and it was always a bit of <laughs> weird British habit of feeling goats to make decisions. But in terms of gut feel, there's something in there about a hunch, and that was Churchill, and he's revered now in the UK. But your data says you've got all the rest of the big decisions wrong. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think gut feel is a real thing, um, and what mm. I would say it is is it is in a real sense a subconscious type of pattern recognition, mm. right? And we know that human brains are incredibly good at pattern recognition. And that our subconscious is actually picks up, picks up on patterns before our conscious does, mind Mm -hmm. does. And so gut feel, I would not discard gut feel. I also wouldn't rely on it exclusively because it, it, you know, it's the avenue by which every kind of prejudice and cognitive bias that exists comes into play. But in Churchill's case, right, when you think about how they sort of said, no, we like, we don't want this guy. So when we, we we think of Churchill in the 1930s as the brave foe of appeasement. Right. So he mm-hmm. said, right, you know, um, Nazism must be torn out root and branch because one cannot appease a tiger by feeding it cat's meat. <laughs> so it's a wonderfully Churchillian quotation, right? Those yeah. sort of cadences and the words and things like that. Um, he never said it. Uh, hmm. I, I'm cheating. I changed one word in the quote. The word is Nazism. Hmm. The quote is actually Gandhiism must be torn out root and branch because one cannot appease a tiger by feeding it cat's meat. Wow. So when Churchill was known as a foe of appeasement, the mm. appeasement that he opposed was appeasement of, of Gandhi's Indian independence movement. If you use the same language to talk about the pacifist Mahatma Gandhi and Adolf Hitler, 
it is possible people will stop taking you seriously. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened to Trisha. Hmm. That is great. You had me. You had me. I'd, I'd heard that quote, but um, I originally, well, that makes sense. It's Churchill and it's Nazi. I didn't know it was Ghanians. Okay. Fascinating. So coming back into this then, there's something about the situation, yeah, and and luck, as you say. But, you know, Gary Player used to say, Hard, harder I practice, the luckier I get. But this, And there's for the something about gut feel and decision-making and other. But, but the context you place a leader in is important in your Con- thinking. Context is all important. Um, and so I, right. I, I, I was, when I teach, I always tell, I tell, often tell students that there's a cheat code in my class. Um, when I ask a question, if you don't know the answer, you can always get out of it by saying, well, it depends on the context. Um, and so, you know, if we pick Churchill, Churchill outside of the context of Hitler is a disaster and Churchill inside the context of Hitler is the one is, you know, one of the greatest heroes of the 20th century context matters greatly because, and what that tells us is that leadership is not a ranking problem. It is a matching problem. So ranking problems are where you say, you know, you, you look at your options and you, you, you take, you order them from best to worst and you pick the and you pick the best one. That's a ranking problem. So it's like dating. Teenagers think of dating as a ranking problem, right? Teenagers want to date a supermodel. When you've grown up a little bit, hopefully you realize that dating is actually a matching problem. You don't want there, you don't want some, some like, some hierarchy of breast doors because it doesn't exist. There is no Mm. such thing. What you want is the right person for you. So when you're picking leaders, you don't want the best leader. You want the right leader, the Mm. right leader for your situation and your context. And when the situation changes, you may no longer, you know, that person may no longer be the right leader as Churchill found out when the British, when the British people turned him out as soon as the war was over. Mm. And so that idea that everything about picking leaders and what brings you success in a leadership environment is about context is, I think, may, maybe the most important thing you can learn about selecting leader, about selecting leadership, that there's no such thing as general purpose, like, oh, well, this person's charismatic, they'd be a good leader. Nope, hmm. that doesn't work. And th- therefore, you start to get into, the, you know, if you equate it to talent management in organizations now, one of the biggest difficulties people have is foreseeing the circumstances people are going to come into power, what's going to be happening. You know, if you look at Merkel, who was in charge for a long, long while politically, that's great. She was the right person. She, you know, many people might disagree, but she was a stable force in Germany in terms of what they've done has been successful. Yeah, um, I mean, but- and, and certainly during an era when American leadership was quite lacking, we, yeah. and I think, I think I, I at least was quite grateful that we had someone who was, who was able to do that. Mm. Um, so I've never met her, met her, but I was once, uh, she spoke at Harvard commencement. Mm. And so just that day I happened to be in the Harvard libraries looking at, uh, our copy of the Gutenberg Bible. And I heard some noise and I looked up and she was standing next to me looking at the Gutenberg Bible. I was like, well, this is the most Harvard moment you can possibly imagine. Wow. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but anyways, uh, so Merkel's an interesting case because if I recall, she has a PhD in nuclear chemistry. Mm. And so talent management is hard. And this is particularly true, by the way, for the U.S. presidency, um, precisely because um, up until 1936, presidents were elected in November, but didn't take office until March. Mm. And so he had this huge gap. And quite often, the situation presidents faced would have no relationship to the one that they thought they would face when they were elected. Interesting. And so... If you become, you know, if you become president, if you become CEO, it is likely that the things that will decide the success of your term in office are not predictable from before you got the job. Mm. And so with unfiltered leaders, 
right? The ones who are very high variance. What the what you want to kind of do there is look for people who have such a large set, a broad set of underlying capabilities mm-hmm. that they will be able to deal successfully with mm-hmm. a larger number of unknowns. So the great psychologist Dean Simonton, uh, who's the you know the psychologist of performance, he studied leaders in many many contexts, and particularly he looked at the U.S. presidency in particular, but he's looked at all sorts of from generals to you know artists to scientists, you name it. And what he found was that there's a particular characteristic for presidents, but also for other leaders that seems to be by far the most important one at the individual level of predicting success. It's what he called intellectual brilliance. So that is not the same thing as IQ, right? So sheer intellectual horsepower is a component of it, but it is not the whole thing because it adds on top of that openness to experience, uh, creativity, curiosity, breadth of interests, all these sorts of different things that mm-hmm. makes that, uh, that Simonson argues is what really leads to intellectual brilliance. And he says, these people are more consistently successful because this sort of broad set of capabilities allows them to handle lots and lots of different types of environments. So what does that look like? Go back to Theodore Roosevelt. So before Theodore Roosevelt became president of the United States, at you know in his early 40s, he had already written 12 books, mm-hmm. two of which were acknowledged as all-time classics. The mm-hmm. first of which he wrote while he was a college student. It was a naval history of the War of 1812 that was so good that the Royal Navy made it required reading for all of its officers, even though it was written by an American. Amazing. You know, an American 20-year-old. This is an astonishing achievement, right? He had deep expertise, as they said, in everything from cow punching to protective coloration. And could speak on equal terms with experts in any of those fields. That's intellectual brilliance. He's not the only mm-hmm. example. It's not surprising that Abraham Lincoln, uh, author, you know, like, who has said only two to three months of formal education in his entire life, is the only U.S. president with a patent. Hmm. Right. The, he was extraordinarily inventive, even hmm. though he came from an environment in which that was not encouraged at all. So when you're picking particularly so when you're picking filtered leaders, right, the system has at some level, unless the system is profoundly broken, internalized these sorts of constraints, these sorts of categories. Yeah. Right. They, if, you, if you've had got 20 years of experience, you probably faced lots of different situations and we've evaluated you in lots of different situations. But if you've got an unfiltered leader, we haven't done that. And so we have to kind of bet on talent as opposed hmm. to proven performance. And Simonson argues, and I agree, that, that this is the best, big, biggest single indicator of leadership talent. Hmm. Intellectual brilliance. I love it. And it's linked into this anti-fragile Nicholas Taleb, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, can't predict the future, so therefore resilience. And even the Center for Resilience in the U.S. has now redefined resilience as the ability to thrive in chaos. So that's going along those routes, isn't it? That, yeah, um, I think that's exactly right. That what we is that in particular, so my next book will be on, uh, on leadership in the crisis. Um, but one of the characteristics of crises, right, and sort of chaos is precisely that the level of information that you have, right, is ambiguity. Mm. So you don't know what you want to know, and you don't mm. even need know what you need to, right? You don't even know what are the, you don't, you don't have the answers to the questions you're asking, and you don't even know if you're asking the right questions. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so intellectual brilliance essentially is what is argument would be is someone who's really good at handling that level of ambiguity. We know that as ambiguity increases, intellectual brilliance helps your performance in those environments. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's exactly right, that we're trying to do that and maximize those abilities. And at the same time, strip out the negatives, right? Because mm-hmm. narcissists are narcissists are really dangerous in leadership positions at any time, but particularly in these kinds of environments, 
because they will interpret right all ambiguous data as reflections of their own personal glory. And so either they will sort of skew the organization to trying to maximize that, or if they th think that they're going to fail, narcissistic rage when your sort of inflated self-image is threatened is a very real thing. And it's a terrifying thing if you've ever seen yeah. it, right? Because yeah. it is absolutely uncontrollable, the destructive rage where they lash out at the world that has disappointed them. Oh, I could talk and talk and talk. And, you know, that, that, that topic, particularly that last bit is an interesting one with recent politics. I'd love to have you back on, you know, the new book in terms of, you know, uh, the ability to make decisions when we're in chaos. Yeah. Is just, it, it's a massive thing for most leaders at the moment or the perception of chaos anyway, or trying to work that out. Um, one question I'm asking, uh, at the end of these sessions is uh, the, biggest mistake you made, which has made you successful. Um, it sounds like there's not much in there, but I'm sure there's something somewhere. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say it was the biggest mistake I made, but, yeah. um, but the way I put it is, is sort of the biggest wrong turn that happened in my career. Mm -hmm. Um, so when I was a graduate student, I was, um, you know, I was working in political science and I, that's why I might be in international, international relations, international security. So it, I, you would ask me, I would say my most likely outcome from this was being in some windowless basement of the Pentagon where I would never be, you know, I would never see sunlight again. <laughs> um, and so I was working on taking on Clayton Christensen, the great innovation thinker on innovation who mm -hmm. invented disruptive innovation. I essentially was working on applying his ideas to militaries and getting to understand how they applied to militaries. And so a mutual friend connected us and I met with him and sort of showed him the paper. And because Clay was, you know, just a great man, instead of throwing this graduate student who was telling him, you know, that he wanted to improve his theory out of his office, he actually listened to me and sort of engaged and was like, yeah, this is really interesting. And so at the, at the end of the conversation, um, I just, he was, Clay was not just a genius. He was a wise man, right? The sort of person who asked for advice, not just mm. insight. And as I said, you know, if you have any thoughts, I don't never really wanted to be an academic. I'm just doing a PhD because it seemed interesting. What should I do next? And he looks down at me, li literally he was six, nine, um, six, nine. Yeah, it, was, it was like having a conversation with a tree. Um, <laughs> and he says, I think you should teach at Harvard business school. Um, I went, Okay. Um, didn't know that was one of the options. Let's talk about that some more. Um, yeah. and that started the path. It's not, it's not the whole path, but that started the fairly long and winding path that ended me up at Harvard Business School, where I had, you know, I was there for seven years as mm -hmm. a professor and I had a wonderful experience. And I would say that I have now been out of the business school for four years and I still refer to, to it as we, right? Yeah. Like, like, like when I, when I, I still think of it as we, I'm sure when I die, I will still think of it as we. It was such a good and a powerful experience. <laughs> It's a good way but, to have, though. <laughs> but I was a political scientist mm -hmm. in, a, in an organizational behavior department. And so when I came in, there was sort of, you know, you, you know, we just go write books. Books are not disciplinary specific. Usually go write books. We'll take care of you. I was like, okay. So I wrote my first book, started thinking about my second. But at that point, there was some turnover in the department. And they said, you know, we'd really like you to publish in organizational behavior journals. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's, that's not what I do. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't even read them. <laughs> much less, you know, much less write in them and, and learning to write in them is a multi-year process. Yeah. And I said, you know, like, I understand why you're saying that, you know, like you're an organizational behavior department, but that's also not what we, you know, that's not what, that's not what I signed up for. Um, and I don't want to do it. Like, you know, however much I love it here. And I, I loved that job more than I, you know, like ever thought it was possible to love a job. I was mm -hmm. like, that is not for me. And I had to, you know, say like, okay, then I'm going to, I'm not, you know, I'm going to leave you know, as opposed to like the traditional path of having, you know, leaving fingernails on the marks on the floor as I get pulled out. Um, let's leave what we all love each other, right? That actually makes more sense. Um, and what I learned from that is that I am contrarian is not the right word. I'm sort of 
but congenitally unable to go along with the consensus, right? Mm -hmm. So when I did my dissertation on leadership, my dissertation committee said, you know, you will not get a job, right? Because mm -hmm. political scientists don't study leadership. So you're going to mm -hmm. leave here and you're going to be unemployed and which is not cool. Well, you know, obviously not good. And I said, you know what? Like if that happens, then I'll go back to McKinsey. No one's mm -hmm. going to feel sorry for me. No one's going to say, oh, that poor guy. Like, okay, you know, it didn't work out. Fine. Um, and I realized, oh, you know, but but it, there's this tendency that I, you know, in, at Harvard Business School, I published a, you know, a cover story in Harvard Business Review arguing that the biggest problem in the American economy was the wealth and power of the financial sector had grown out of all disproportion to its actual value. And this was literally the single most important thing we could do is reel that back. And, you know, most of the senior people in the, in the American financial sector are products of Harvard <laughs> Business School. This did not win me a lot of friends for the very, very <laughs> powerful and important people. And, you know, one of my colleagues was like, are you crazy? Like, 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 why would you do this? And I'm sort of, well, it's true. Like, I mean, like, like, like this is what my research led me to believe. And like, mm -hmm. it's clear, it's true. Mm -hmm. So if, I mean, being a professor, particularly a professor at a place like Harvard is an incredible privilege, mm -hmm. right? Like, like American society has put you in a place where you get to sit and think and work with the best students in the world. And like, if you don't use that to sort of say the truth and what, what's the point, Yeah, right? Why are you here? And so, what I realized from this was it's basically impossible for me to just be a, you know, a square peg in a square hole. That's mm. just not who I am. No. And I need to either create my own places or find places that are willing to create places to create roles for me. And that's, that is far more likely to succeed than just trying to be a product of an institution. So you could say not, yeah. you could say very accurately that I am a case study of my research. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The analogy I always have is the grit and the oyster for the pearl. Yeah. Um, for me, leadership is about agitating for the future. So how do you put a bit of grit in whatever you do and always challenge and be curious? And it goes back to the intellectual brilliance that you were talking about before. So yeah, fascinating. Uh, it's been a huge pleasure. So thank you for being on. If people want to find out more about you, where would they find you? Yeah. Thank you, Colin. This was wonderful. So I am at Gmukunda at G-M-U-K-U-N-D-A on Twitter. I also host a, po a podcast, NASDAQ's World Reimagined with Gotham Mukunda, which is on ethical leadership for the 21st century. You can find that anywhere podcasts exist. Uh, I'm www.gothamukunda.com, and I would love to hear from any of you. Oh, brilliant. Oh, it's a pleasure, sir. And um, I know you're struggling slightly, but I hope you feel better. Um, and I look forward to welcoming you back on, particularly that new book and the new, t new topic you need to let me know when it's uh, out and about. So You got it, great. Colin. Thank you. Anytime. Yeah. Enjoy the rest of your day. Take care. Thank you. Well, that was amazing. What a, oh, what a conversation. Gotham for me is one of these people I love talking to, um, to get insights, but the, the insights are based around a structure, a framework, his work and his thinking around filtered and unfiltered. Then there's this, this next piece in there, which this, the tales and the stories and the, and the ambiguity of leadership, what they face, the situational, the context piece, but also just starting to think about what we do with an unfiltered leader who we don't know and how we predict the future, which relates to talent management and this concept of intellectual brilliance, concept of the characteristics that are researched to say these are the, the types of things, including curiosity that we need to be looking at for the future. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's always a, a good point for me to reflect on myself as a leader, uh, my thinking and how I operate, but it also is a, a great place to reflect for work with clients and how we work with, with organizations to think about talent management and leadership. So delighted to have him on. Hope you enjoyed it. And I look forward to welcoming you on another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast soon. Thank <laughs> you.